What is the purpose of your life? Like, why do you exist? What, what reason do you get out of bed in the morning for? I'm going to go, whoa, Justin, like, I'm going to start with a joke or a relatable story or something. Put a Calvin and Hobbes comic up. But, but if I came up and asked you, what, what is the purpose of your life? What, what would your knee-jerk response be? Would you have a response at all? Would it just be, well, the pastor's asking me, so it's got to be something about Jesus and God. I don't know. Back off, buddy. Um, and, and some of you, some of you old-timers, you'll remember uh, this guy, Pastor Dan, Dan Thornton, uh, was the pastor here, my pastor, for 20 years plus, and uh, it's still weird to me that some of you guys in here wouldn't know him from Adam, um, or even know Adam, for that matter. Um, but I, I mentioned... I mentioned before, when I was an intern here and Pastor Dan was the pastor, he used to always, he always used to come up to me and, and say, Justin, before you start something, because I always had these crazy ideas, and he said, before you start something, you always, that's how Pastor Dan talked, you always ask the question, what is the purpose? What is the purpose? What, why are you doing what you're doing? What is the goal? At the end of this thing, um, how will you judge success? And um, the reason he would say that is because if you knew the purpose, then everything you did would be aimed toward meeting that goal. And you would be able to stay focused and something, even good things that might be introduced to there, you'd say that doesn't work toward the goal. That's not what we're trying to do here ultimately. So either we need to change that or we need to get rid of that thing. But we're pressing forward to the ultimate goal of, of why we've set up what we've set up. There's a man who had such focus. His name was Robert Woodruff. Robert was the president of Coca-Cola from 1923 to 1955. And Robert Woodruff had one of the most audacious and straightforward uh, visions of, of, of anybody in corporate culture America at that time. And he said this. He said, in my generation, it is my desire that everyone in the world have a taste of Coca-Cola. That was the vision. That was the purpose of Coca-Cola. And so everything that Woodruff did in those 30 years pressed onward toward that goal. And he stayed focused. So if someone came up with some kind of you know, cockamamie idea like, hey, we should build a giant Coca-Cola theme park. He goes, no, get that out of here. That doesn't work toward our goal of giving everyone a taste of Coca-Cola. And for 30 years, he pressed onward toward that goal. And he darn well almost pulled it off. You see around the world today, you can go to almost any corner of the globe and they're drinking Coca-Cola. Might not have electricity, but they're drinking Coca-Cola. And if someone can be that focused and passionate about a sugary drink that is awful for you, shouldn't we be that much more focused and passionate about giving the entire world a taste of the living water, of making Jesus known in every corner of the world. And it's amazing to me how aimless our, our lives can be as believers. And I'm, I'm preaching this to myself just as much as to anybody else. And, and the problem with that is when we don't know what our purpose is, Malcolm X, he, he didn't come up with this, but he kind of made it famous. He said, a man who stands for nothing will fall for anything. 
said, if you don't know what you're standing for, what you're living for, what your heart is beating for, then you're just going to fall. And we'll do this individually. We'll do this as churches. The next fad, the next big popular Christian book that comes our way, whatever the world's telling us, whatever our culture's telling us, whatever next idea comes, we just kind of follow it. And we kind of develop this Christian ADD. We're just like, ooh, shiny, new thing. And we just kind of follow whatever the next thing is. There's no focus. There's no passion. And this has been an endeavor that we've been discussing as a church. If you've been to our last couple um, family time potlucks, we've been discussing the purpose of our church. Uh, There's a lot of our focus at our elder leadership retreat in March. And my goal is by the end of this coming year, this next year, um, that we would have a clear vision and purpose for Peninsula Grace, and that we would more importantly walk in that purpose. And, and we want to be crystal clear on why we as a church exist and what we are called by God to do. Imagine how amazing it would be is if every single person in our body, if every single ministry, if everything we did folded in to that exact same purpose and goal that we had unity and harmony in everything that we were doing, we could do a lot of damage in the name of Jesus. Amen? Yeah. And that's exactly what Paul is praying for here in chapter 1. What he's praying for is that these believers would know their purpose. When we talk about purpose, the English definition is the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists. So he wants them to know why were they created? Why do they exist? And that everything that they would do would move toward that end, the purpose for which they were created. And so he prays. And what he prays for in this, in, in chapter one, and we're going to look at verses nine through 11, he prays that the, that the Philippians would know and live their best life possible. Now think about that for a second. Imagine living your best life possible. Does that sound intimidating? It is. It is. I mean, that is actually impossible for us as believers, and that's why Paul falls on his knees and prays to the God who is the one that will show the Philippians. Remember we said last week in verse 6, he who began a good work in us will complete it. That God's the one who reveals the purpose to us and carries it out in our lives. And so this is his prayer. He says, this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this is Paul's prayer for the Philippians in verses 3 through 8. We see how thankful and how joyful he was, we saw last week, for their partnership in the gospel with him. And now he turns to this prayer. And it is a powerful thing to study and to memorize the prayers of Paul. If you noticed, you're like, how is he doing that? Is there, is there a screen on the back? Um, Paul has a bunch of prayers that he prays in the epistles. Um, you can see them here. They're in your uh, bulletin. Uh, and I, uh, kind of a homework assignment this week would be to, to read through those. Pick one out, maybe this one, maybe a different one, to memorize. And then to pray over the other people in your life using those prayers. It's an incredible thing to compare Paul's prayers with sometimes what ours are. Now, I don't mean to belittle our prayers. We are praying in our own words, and we're being honest before the Father. It's not about following a Paul formula. 
and yet we are called to align our thoughts and desires with God's thoughts and desires. And a powerful way to do that is to read through and pray over the people in our lives with the prayers of Paul. Because oftentimes, you know, you don't, you don't notice Paul praying that everything just goes well for the Philippians. He's not just praying, man, I pray that you have a safe flight or a safe camel ride, or whatever they'd be doing, or just that your grandma is, does, you know, gets over her sickness, or that you will have a good, you'll get that job, or that you'll get that house. Now, none of those things are bad to pray for. But for Paul, those are very peripheral at best. The heart of what he's about, and when he gets on his knees and he begs the Father, he says, I pray that these people would have the capacity to understand the enormity, the, the power of God and who he is, that they would know him and that they would be able to understand how high and how deep and how wide the love of Christ is for them. And that you would enable them to live a life worthy of the calling of those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Those are the things that are central in the life of Paul and should be in the life of ours as well. And so this is what he prays. He starts with love. Paul starts with love. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So Tina Turner asked the question, what's love got to do, got to do with it? Everything, Tina. It has everything to do with it. In fact, if we, if, when Jesus was, was asked in, in Matthew 22, the Pharisees came up to him and they tried to trick him. They said, all right, Jesus, what's the most important commandment out there? They're like, he's not going to be able to answer that. There were 614 commandments. How is he going to pick one? Jesus didn't even flinch. He goes, here's the most important thing. You love. You love God with everything in you, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Because what Paul, what, what Jesus understood was that if you are loving, then everything else will follow. But if you don't have love, then nothing else matters. That's what 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you sacrifice yourself for somebody else. If you have not love, you have nothing. You're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And one could argue, if you were asked, what's the purpose of your life? If you wanted to give a one-word answer, you could simply say, love. Love is the purpose. And there's two aspects to love that we're going to see here. The first one is an abounding love, and the other one is a discerning love. So first, the abounding love. Paul says the word abound, it means to increase more and more. And the word picture is a bucket in, in Greek. There was a waterfall pouring into a bucket, overflowing that little bucket. I was at the uh, Niagara Falls with my dad a couple years ago, and being there, I mean, you can't even get close to it. Like, you get, a boat will take you up to a certain distance, and then if you got any closer, it could just suck you in and kill you, all right? How's that for a tourist trap? So, you, you think, like, I mean, if I brought my little bucket, you know, my little pail, and I'm like, I'm gonna fill up my bucket, you know, and I pick it under the Niagara Falls, is the Niagara Falls sufficient to fill my tiny little bucket, Yes, it is. That's the, that's the answer. So, so when we say, well, then what is, what's he referring to here? What's being poured into our bucket? Where does this love come from? Paul says in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Picture Niagara Falls, God's abounding, unending love poured into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. That's the love that our life bucket is being filled with. And what happens 
is that bucket gets not just filled with that waterfall, but it spills out and overflows into the lives of those around us. So you say, well, so how do we love? What does that look like? Well, listen, we become, I, I, have, I have not been able to get over this, this little phrase for the last couple of weeks. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. In other words, what we put in front of us throughout the day, throughout our week, is what we are going to start to become like. You know, I was telling the, the elders at our last meeting, I said, you know, sometimes I could be guilty of just, like, going way overboard when it comes to sports. Like, it's the playoff season right now, and so I am, like, all in on the NBA, watching basketball, you know, whenever I can. And I can notice, if I've been watching basketball all day, and you bump into me, what's going to spill out? Man, did you see the Cavs last night? 25 three-pointers. It's the record. Can you believe it? But what about Curry? Is he going to be able to come back? It's a big conference finals coming up next. And I just, that's, like, what I'm excited about. That's what gets me fired up. But if I have Jesus in front of me throughout the week, if he's the one that I'm beholding and you knock into me, it's his love and it's a passion for him that's going to spill out. Listen, I don't know what you're putting in front of you, but I can tell you that it'll become evident because we're going to become like that that we behold. So it's an abounding love. It's an overflowing love, but it's also a discerning love. He says that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So what he's saying here, I have uh, my two-year-old nephew that interrupted my awesome announcement earlier. Um, this is him and I at, the, uh, at a hotel pool in Anchorage. Scandalous photo of your pastor topless. I'm sure that'll go viral soon. Um, so we're, this, Ray is like one of the most lovey, most huggy little kids you've ever met before he even turned one. Like he could give you legitimate hugs. Like he would grab your neck and pull you in and you just like puddled. You know, it was just like game over, right? But here's the thing. Ray's love from a young age, it lacked discernment, okay? So, you know, mommy, neck hug. Daddy, neck hug. Stranger in the park, neck hug, right? Like, basically, if you had a cracker or a dum-dum, you're my best friend, and I'll follow you just about anywhere, okay? In the same way, he, he abounds in love, but he lacks discernment. In the same way, Paul prays not just that they would love more, but that they would love better, that they would love with discernment. Now, where the analogy breaks down is this is not a call to love, uh, to be pickier about who you love, or, or, or to be more selective in your loving. No, remember, it's not like we have like five love tokens that we can like hand out, and then it's, oh, that's it, that's all we got. No, remember, it's an endless supply from God's waterfall. It's unending. So we love extravagantly. We love without limits. So how do we, how do we kind of put this on the ground? So how does a parent love with discernment? Okay, it's Mother's Day. We'll go there. Um, I know all about it. Undiscerning love just says, just give them whatever they want. Whatever makes them happy. It's cool, right? But discerning love says, I know that all you want to eat for dinner is sugar and Doritos, but I know what you need, and I know what's best for your digestive system. So eat your vegetables, right? Or maybe you don't want to discipline your kid. Or maybe you don't want to be patient with them. But you know what's best. You see, discerning, discerning love gives people what they need, not what they want. Discerning love gives people what they need, not just what they want. And that's what Paul is praying for here. It, it takes knowledge and depth of insight to know what somebody needs, right? 
Otherwise, couldn't it be pretty arrogant to say, hey, I know exactly what's, what, what you need and I'm going to love you accordingly? So the, the question is, how do we know what people need? How do we know? How do we know? How do we, how, where do we get this discernment from? Where do we get this depth of insight from? Well, it's two things. First of all, we got to know the book. The, the Bible is our love manual. It, it gives us Paul and Jesus and many others give us specific instruction as to what love looks like, most personified in the person of Jesus himself, and many examples of people who do good job and very, very poor jobs at loving throughout the story of Scripture. And so we can't know what's, how to love people well with discernment if we are not in the book. And just as importantly, or, or I guess the next part would be to know the person. If we don't know the people well that we're loving, we don't know what they need and how to apply that knowledge from the book. A.T. Robertson, he pictures, and this has been a really helpful picture for me, this love and knowledge thing. Um, He pictures it like a river, okay? And and the the river flows. It's our love is the water, but it's the river bank that, that guides and knows how to correctly direct the flow of that love. So, in other words, picture it this way. Love without knowledge, love without knowledge can become a dangerous flood. That it just goes any direction. It becomes out of control, and it becomes chaotic, and it doesn't actually do what's best for people. But knowledge without love becomes a dry riverbed. And that's where Paul says, he goes, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. If we have all the knowledge, we know scripture front and back, but we don't have love in our hearts for people, that's just arrogance. That's just arrogance, and it's not helpful. So here's, here's why we need that love, that discerning love. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why? So that you may, may be able to discern what's best. So that you may be able to discern what's best. Two words here we want to look at. The first one is discern. This word means to approve. And and the word picture, it it means testing or checking something out to make sure it is what it should be. So is this thing what it should be? In two ways that this was applied at the time, first of all, it would have been testing, um, you know, people who wanted to become physicians so that you knew that does this person, if they're going to do brain surgery, okay, do they know what they should know to do brain surgery? Can they, can they be who they should be? Are they qualified to do this? Another area was to test metals or coins to see, are they what they claim to be? Do they have the value that they purport? And then what is it that we're discerning? What is it that we're seeing if it is what it should be? He says, discern to see what is best. What is best? This word um, means excellent. And it's, it's a little wordy here, but um, these, these three guys who have this commentary, um, they, they do, I think they, they say it really well. He says, not, not merely things not bad. So it's not just things that aren't bad, but the things best among those that are good. The things of more advanced excellence. Ask as to things, not merely is there no harm, but is there any good and which is the best. So let me put this somewhere where we can live. If you're asking yourself, man, how many times do you do this? Should we watch this movie? And you're like looking on the back or looking it up online to see like what content it got. Well, there's not too much swearing or too much sex or too much violence. Okay, it's not bad. It's, I, I don't think it's going to be harmful. I think the kids could watch it or whatever. Let's watch it. That, he said, that's not the litmus test that Paul's talking about here. 
what he's saying, he goes, what is the most Christ-exalting, joy-inducing thing that I can do with my life? That's a higher call. That's a much higher call. You see, it's easy to choose between good and bad, right? Like, crack cocaine, hugging grandma. Like, you know, that's not hard. Grandma. Um, For those... For some, some of you. But choosing, choosing between better or best, man, that's above our pay grade, right? Like that takes some discernment. And that's why this is in Paul's prayer. He says, I pray that God would cause your love to abound in knowledge and depth of insight that you may be able to discern what's best. Not coming from our own little human brains, but this is something that's coming from the creator of brains, creator of the universe. God himself. And I, and I, and I want to just say here, and we're talking about God's will, sometimes, and this can be daunting to go, how am I supposed to every single day know what is the best thing for me to do? Like, that seems super overwhelming, and I feel like there's always a better thing I could have done. And I think sometimes we have this idea that God, and God, knowing God's will means he's got A and B, and the option is hidden behind his back, and he goes, choose which one you think it is, but if you get it wrong, I will smite you right? And so we get kind of freaked out, like, God, do you want me to go to college A or college B? Or do you want me to marry person A or person B or neither one? Do you want us to go to move to location A or location B or get job A or job B? And we kind of like stress out. And the more I read scripture, this is the more of what I'm convinced of. God is not as concerned about A or B as he is in the manner in which we walk. He's more concerned that we walk by faith in him. That whatever option we pick, that we're doing it in discerning love. And so here's how I would apply that. Many times, the best option is A. And the best option is also B. That you, but we have freedom in Christ to choose between either one. And either one we can walk in. And if we're loving people, we're walking by faith. Either choice can be the best. Now, are there specific times that God is clearly convicted? This has happened in my life where he goes, I want you walking down this road, man. And then we follow him. Okay, there are some times when he specifically is leading us. And, and that, our conscience says, that's, that's no doubt about that. But many times, I think we have the freedom to choose between A or B. As long as we're walking according to his word. So, but what is best? What is best? What is, what is ultimately the excellent thing? For Paul, this was a very, very simple answer. And we're going to see this next week, but he says in verse 21, for me, Paul says, for me to live is Christ, period. My life, it, it means, if I could sum it up in one word, is Jesus. And he expounds on that in chapter 3. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. And so Paul's litmus test is this. If it's not magnifying Jesus, then I don't want to put any part of it. That's it. If it causes me to know Jesus more, to show Jesus more, then I'm in. But if it doesn't, then I'm out. I mean, that's a radical life. That for many of us, for myself, that would, that would mean a lot of changes in a lot of areas. But I believe that's where we're called to head. And the result of this discerning love, choosing what is best, comes out in who we are as people. 
says, be pure and blameless, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is talking about our character, talking about who we are. These two words, first he says pure. The word in Greek, it's two different Greek words, kind of a compound word. It means son, and it means to judge. So what he's saying is you're held up under the scrutiny of the light of the sun, and you're shown for who you really are. He says on the day of Christ, when, when Christ judges the things we've done, we're going to be held up to his light, and we're going to see, is there purity there? Now, a lot of times when we think of the word pure, we simply think of, like, sexual purity. Like, have you saved yourself for marriage kind of a thing? And that's a part of it. But he's talking to, I mean, purity that affects every single area of our lives. And I think at the end of the day, what he's saying here is he's talking about being genuine versus being phony. Like, isn't it pretty easy for us to play the church game? I grew up in the church. I, I, I can win that game. I can show up to church every Sunday. I can, I can be really nice to people. I, I know how to do church. But, but that's not what we're called. That, that's not purity. In, in Corinthians, he, he shows us, look, you can fool other people. You can fool yourself. But you can't fool the one who judges. Paul said, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. He goes, My conscience is clear. I I think what I'm doing is right. I think I'm following God, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. This is when we stand before his judgment seat. When our works are exposed, he's not just going to look at, hey, what was your church attendance? You know, hey, how much did you give in the offering? He's going to look at the motives for why we did things. And Paul says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. The only things that will stand before him and will be rewarded for are the things that were done in his power. And then he goes on to say, so pure, and then he says blameless. Blameless means without offense. Um, This word indicated it was not being not guilty of causing others to fall or stumble. So this word, again, this Greek word picture was a trap, and they'd put bait on the trap to lure people in and then catch them. And so being blameless means not trapping others, bringing others into sinful actions. Jesus had some pretty strong words to say about this in Luke 17. He goes, it would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. Now, I've never had a millstone tied around my neck, but this is what one looks like, and this is what goes into moving one. And so I'm under the assumption that I don't want it to happen to me. Okay? He goes, look, our own deeds will be judged because if you bring someone else into sin... It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. So Wearsby, Warren Wearsby has two best choice tests that we can kind of use to kind of determine if, if it's something we should be engaged in. The first question is this, will it make others stumble? Well, what, is what I'm doing, will it cause other people to stumble? And I think one way to apply this is, is what I'm doing, will it damage somebody else's view of Christ in any way? Or maybe to say it positively, is what I'm doing, will it cause them, will Christ be magnified in what I'm doing or what I'm saying or in my attitude? 
And will it, will it cause someone else's conscience to be violated? Even if for you, it's not a problem. If it causes someone else's conscience to be violated, he goes, don't do it. And the second thing is, will I be ashamed if Jesus came back and I was doing this? So Jesus can come back at any moment, and if he comes back and you're in the middle of whatever you're doing, will there be shame involved? They'll be like, oh, Jesus. You know, like, I mean, if I was, if I was in um, my office and someone just walked in, and I'm like racked out on the couch, and I'm just like drool everywhere, like, oh, hey, guys, uh, thanks for your tithe, you know. Will, will we, what will we be caught doing when Jesus comes back? Now, these aren't easy things to kind of camp on, right? These aren't fun things to kind of go through, but we've, we've got to recognize where the source of this lies. This is what he says in verse 11, our last verse. Be filled with Jesus' fruit. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This word filled, it means to be filled to the brim. He says, as we abound more and more in this discerning love, and we, di- and we figure out what is best, what God's called us to, this is the result, that we'll be filled to the brim with the fruit of righteousness. They say, well, what does that mean? What is fruit of righteousness? I don't understand. So, Anytime that the Bible's talking about fruit, any, unless it's like literal fruit, it's typically referring to the actions of our lives, the way that we live. And, and the, most, the most common one you, you probably know that talks about the fruit in our lives is, is Galatians 5, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It kind of gives us a list. I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but it's, it shows what love looks like. And we know these, right? Love is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So you say, what does a life that's pure and blameless look like? What is a life that's filled with Christ's fruit in us? Well, you say, am I, am I gentle toward others? Am I kind? Am I exhibiting self-control? Is there joy in my life? And that's an indication of if we're being filled with his fruit or not. But I think most importantly is the question of where does this fruit come from? Where does this fruit come from? And he tells us in this verse, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through, not Justin, it's not the fruit of the Justin, filled with the fruit of righteousness, trust me, last night's Mother's Day meal, you don't want the fruit of the Justin, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Being pure and blameless, that doesn't come from us. This, this isn't our own work. This is his. And, and one of the best ways I know how to say this, this word, uh, the phrase that comes through, it means the channel of an act. So it's where is, what's the channel? Where is it coming from? And, and there's the analogy of, of, of a tree with the root and the fruit. Where does the fruit of the tree come from? Well, you can't get any fruit if there's no root. So the question is, is it rooted? If it's a tree that's rooted in, in, in good soil, it will provide nourishment for that tree and provide good fruit. And so for us in our lives, the root is our faith. So the question is, where are we rooted? If we're rooted in self, we're not going to have any good fruit. But if we are rooted in Christ, if we're abiding in him, trusting in him, believing Jesus, then what's going to come is the, is the works. It's the fruit. It's the love in our lives. But we cannot love, we cannot, we cannot do things that are acceptable in his sight if there is no faith. And I think it's in your notes, but um, John Calvin says it so well. He goes, we are wild and useless olive trees until we are grafted into Christ. Because before him, we, could, we, we had nothing good. Who, but when we are grafted into Christ, who by his living root makes us fruit-bearing branches. 
Jesus said it another way in John 15. He said, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're rooted in me, you're going to bear a lot of fruit. But if you're not, then you will bear no fruit. This is a picture of a fruit pie. Now, look delicious? It's not. If you look closer, look at the uh, kiwi in particular. Okay, that's some weird looking kiwi. This is fake fruit, okay? So it looks delicious, but when you bite into it, it's disgusting, okay? In the same way, in our lives, we can do a lot of fruit manufacturing, okay? I could make fake fruit. I could make it look really good to this world, okay? And I think that's a lot of times what what church activity or just a lot of of work, of self-based work can be. It's plastic fruit, But when it's bitten into, it's exposed for for what it really is. Listen, Jesus' fruit isn't primarily about outward actions. It's about an inward transformation. And when our hearts are changed, it's going to manifest itself in our outward actions. But it's got to start in the heart. It's got to be a transformation of who we are. And so what's the ultimate result here? What, What is the purpose, the ultimate purpose of our lives? Why this love? Why this discernment? He tells us, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Because it's not my fruit, I don't get the glory. Because it's not my fruit, I don't get the glory. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and For him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. See, a telltale sign of real fruit versus fake fruit is who gets the glory. Like when I tend to do something in my own strength, I boast about it. And that's where a lot of times we get into a fight with with God. And we want to do things on our own so that we get the credit. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. But when we see God, when we see God in his power do something in us, we step back in awe and say, man, God is awesome. Praise be to him and not to me. So what's the purpose of our life? What's the purpose of our life? In in Paul's prayer, this is how I, I would summarize Paul's prayer. It's to glorify God by bountifully bearing Jesus' fruit, which is discerning love. To bountifully bear Jesus' fruit, which is discerning love. Or if we could make it a little bit less wordy, it would simply be this. It's to worship God by treasuring Jesus. To worship God by treasuring Jesus. And if if we are satisfied with him as our all in all, and our one heartbeat is like Paul's, is to make him known, to show him, and to know him, and that brings much glory to the Father. So how do I abound in this discerning love? And this is This is where we'll park the car. How do I abound in discerning love? Two ways for us to be thinking as we go out this week and make disciples. First one is to behold it. To behold it. The best way to become something is to behold it. So we simply, we ask the question, are we looking at Jesus? Like, where is my mind? Where is my focus throughout the week? Am I I looking at him and his word? Am I looking at him in my conversations with other people? Am I looking to him in, in prayer throughout this week? Because what we behold, and when someone bumps into us, is what is going to spill out of us. And secondly, we ask for it. 
Remember, this is Paul's prayer. He's praying this for the Philippians. And, and can you imagine the, the kind of things that God could do if we became a people who took him seriously at his word? He, he said, you have not because you ask not. And if we begin praying this, and, and notice Paul's not praying this for himself, he's praying this for the Philippians. And as we think about the people in our lives, our friends and our family, our loved ones, our, our church family, as we begin to pray for them, imagine if we became a people that were praying for each other. I pray that, that you, that Peninsula Grace's heart would abound more and more in love that, that, and, and discernment. And I, and I pray that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. If we started praying that, I think things will start to look radically different. So let's get on our knees and let's pray. And we're going to spend some time here doing that together as, as Lisa and, and the, the band comes back up. We are going to behold Jesus together. As we behold him, we start to become like him. And let me ask, close in prayer, and ask for these things on our behalf. Father, this is my prayer. That Peninsula Grace's love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And I pray that we would be able to discern what is best, that we would be presented pure and blameless, that, that we, that my brothers and sisters, would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus, and that we would be a people that would glorify and praise you in our lives. It's in your son's name that these things happen, and it's in your son's name that we praise you. Amen.